Hey everybody, this is Ray Telsh, and this is episode 11 of Have Not Seen This, a weekly in-depth look at a much-beloved movie selected specifically by our guests that they're a little surprised when they find out people have not seen. I hope everyone's having a good week out there. I'm still riding high off of uh, turkey and tryptophan and our wonderful conversation last week about West Side Story. We did get a little bit of feedback on our episode from Thomas Mariani, a previous guest of the show, who said, Aside from casting more actual Puerto Rican actors, the main curiosity of the new West Side Story for me is that Steven Spielberg has never tackled the musical genre. He's had occasional winks and nods to it with the opening of Temple of Doom or that random musical bit with the little girl in Hook, remember that weirdness? But never a full-on musical. Him tackling an uncharted genre could go either way, but a move like this at least interests me more than Ready Player One-style regurgitation. First of all, I liked Ready Player One, although I'll I'll give you that. It's basically Spielberg doing what he did before. But that's a really good point, Thomas. Uh, Spielberg hasn't done a musical before, and and this could go either way. But it's stepping into new territory, and we've certainly praised filmmakers for that in the past. So I'd be really curious to see how the remake goes. And we we did talk about the remake quite a bit in last week's episode, but it's kind of hard not to when it's looming there on the horizon and a year from now we'll all know how it turned out so that led to this week's conversation our friday inquiry of what is a movie that should never be remade or in contrast what is a movie that's begging to be remade and we got some answers there emily mills said should not the princess bride should nothing they need to stop remaking movies plenty of amazing books and overlooked historical figures out there Luis Ramirez said Casablanca and Star Wars come immediately to mind for movies that should not be remade, although one could say that Star Wars has already been retouched. As for remakes, back in the day, I remember J. Michael Straczynski was attached to a Forbidden Planet reimaging. I'd like to see that happen with or without JMS. Chris Talent chimed in that said should never be remade. Amelie should be remade. Clue. James Jackson said, never remake Masters of the Universe, it's super 80s, should be remade the first Starship Troopers. I love this movie, but I would really like to see a big budget modern FX version. Tony Jackson said, I wouldn't mind seeing a remake of The Running Man, Rocky should never be remade. James Sobieski said they should reboot the Derek Flint series. They should never remake Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And Mark Anthony Cresson said they need to remake Killer Clowns from Outer Space. They need to never remake Fight Club. Robert Paulson is dead. So my take on this. uh, Yeah, Casablanca and Star Wars. They have done a sequel to Casablanca, believe it or not. Very underknown film for pretty good reason. Although I'd be game for Forbidden Planet reimagining if it came from JMS. Uh, I'm always game for just about anything JMS puts his hands on, though. So, uh, Clue, Chris, are you crazy? Clue is perfect. It is a beautiful comedy, and I don't think that should ever be touched. I can't say that I hold much praise for Masters of the Universe. It's pretty bad, even though it is super 80s. Uh, I'd like to see them make a version that's actually more true to the character and the lore that they established over the course of the animated series. 
And yeah, I agree. They should never remake Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And Emily, I don't think we need to worry about them making The Princess Bride. Hopefully the studio got wind of the extreme negativity a couple of months ago that came out when they announced they were going to do a remake. I think the studio just needs to recognize that's a sacred film, that nobody is going to accept a remake the same way they might something else. And that's not to say there aren't movies out there that don't deserve remakes. I made the comment, uh, I guess a decade ago now, when they announced a Clash of the Titans remake, that I I love the original Clash of the Titans, 80s kid, grew up with that film, but you revisit it now and it's definitely room for improvement through a remake. Unfortunately, the version we got ain't it. It has room for for improvement, but we didn't get it with that remake, and unfortunately that probably killed any chance we get at getting a decent remake of it, at least for a while. I post those questions on Fridays through social media, and I always welcome as many answers as I can get. Of course, we read them on the air, but I also just like them for the thought process behind them. You can follow the show on Twitter at Have Not Seen This and on Facebook at Have Not Seen This Podcast. So that's enough of last week's episode, turning our eyes to this week's episode, and we're talking a bit about reality this week. And I had a very odd view of reality this week. I broke my son's heart over the weekend. I didn't mean to. It was completely unintentional, but it showed me just how fragile reality can be. See, my son is a big fan of YouTube. At 10 years old, he has a number of YouTubers that he loves to follow, that he tunes in for every week. And he came to me concerned about one of the YouTubers that he follows. He started telling me about what was going on, and I offhandedly said, well, hopefully this is just a storyline and everything will be okay. And he responded to me, what do you mean? And I said, well, you do realize that some of the shows you follow on YouTube are fiction. They're not real. They're a story developed to keep you coming back week after week, and and they're interesting, but they're not real. And his eyes welled up, and he started crying. And I'm not talking about just little tears. I'm talking about full-on sobbing tears. He didn't realize that some of the shows he watches on YouTube are fiction. In his reality, they were interesting because they break away from the mundane, and they show an exciting life. And I crushed that for him, and I still feel really bad about that. It was an accident. I certainly didn't mean to do that, but it showed me just how fragile reality can be, whether it's the real thing or our perception of reality. And our movie this week actually kind of deals with that. Although it's interesting because my son wanted that to be real because it was extraordinary. And by crushing his view of reality, I brought him back to the mundane. Whereas in film, often the characters are leading a mundane life and their break from reality leads them into the extraordinary. This week's film is 1998 Dark City that came out a year before The Matrix. Uh, You're probably familiar with The Matrix movies. If you're not familiar with Dark City, we will talk about this over the course of the podcast 
as to why you should be. It's definitely worth checking out. And the movie comes to us courtesy of Adam Thomas. Now, I've had Thomas Mariani on the podcast before and referenced him several times. He's part of a podcast called Double Edge, Double Bill. Adam is the other half of that podcast, and he brought this movie to me. And this is one I had seen before, but man, it was great to revisit it. And I loved talking with Adam about it. So here we go, 1998, Dark City. So the the premise of your podcast uh, is, you know, pairing a good movie with a bad movie. Yes. I, I've been debating, what what would this get paired with? Dark City, if we had to pair it with a bad movie? Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, Johnny Mnemonic, maybe. Okay. Uh, you know, something, something sci-fi with maybe like a horror tinge. Uh, oh, God, I don't know. What to put I, me on the fucking spot? Uh, <laughs> I was going with Cool World. Oh, that's a good call. <laughs> I didn't even think of that. That would, that would kind of work, and that is an awful film. Yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But see, I would, well, no, because neither of them are good. But I would say, like, Cool World, I would almost put with, like, a, a Bashki, another Bashki film, or even, like, James and the Giant Peach. Oh, or something yeah. like that it's got the elements of live action and then animated but yeah no cool world is garbage yeah well you know mostly i just want to get you to say one of you know your catchphrases from your podcast because there's not really going to be a whole lot of opportunity for you know what the fuck or that kind of thing on this one. Oh no i, I was i will still find things to shit on don't get me wrong <laughs> <laughs> i love the film but i'll still shit on stuff we are talking about Dark City this week, created by Alex Proyas as both the story and screenplay and the director of it, uh, starring Rufus Sewell, William Hurt, Kiefer Sutherland, Jennifer Connelly, and Richard O'Brien. First, there was darkness. Then came the strangers. They abducted us and brought us here. This city, everyone in it, is their experiment. They mix and match our memories as they see fit, trying to divine what makes us unique. One day, a man might be an inspector. The next, someone entirely different. When they want to study a murderer, for instance, they simply imprint one of their citizens with a new personality. Arrange a family for him, friends, an entire history even a lost wallet. They may observe the results. Will a man, given the history of a killer, continue in that vein? Or are we, in fact, more than the mere sum of our memories? So, pretend I have not seen this movie. Okay. How do you describe this movie to someone who's not seen it? How do you sell them on seeing this movie? I would describe it as a sort of murder-noir thriller where nothing can be trusted with fantastic performances from predominantly all character actors with a heavy, heavy, heavy sci-fi tinge. And uh, if you like the aesthetics of, you know, the other Alex Bros movie, The Crow, you probably could get a lot of enjoyment out of this. Uh, if you're a fan of practical effects and amazing set design and things like that, and maybe something a little heady, something that might make you think afterwards, then I don't think you can go much wrong with this movie. Yeah. That's a good description. That's that's really good. And that's one of the things I like about this movie is it's a thinker. It, it doesn't wrap everything up for you and it also, you know, hits on these philosophical ideas as well. Yes. 
kind of get into here in a few minutes. So why, of all the movies out there, why Dark City is your choice? Well, A, I, I just don't think a lot of people have really either seen it or I think, ah, see what I did there, name of the show. Uh, <laughs> I also think uh, it, it kind of quickly got dismissed when it came out. I mean, A, it, it came out with Rufus Sewell as the lead. Nobody knows who the fuck that is, especially at this time. Right. Uh, so, and this was the era when it was big name actors, action stars. I mean, this was the heyday of, you know, the Arnold's, the Bruce Willis movies, things like that. You know, Keanu Reeves starting to make a name for himself. Nobody gives a shit who Rufus Sewell is. So you populate the movie Rufus Sewell and then William Hurt. Like, these are two independent underground actors. And then it's just such a crazy sort of concept to wrap your mouth, uh, head around. Like, really, the billing on this, I, how do you bill this movie to what genre do you attribute this? I mean, it's like five different genres wrapped in one. Yeah. So I, I just don't think a lot of people gave it the time of day. And I think that's a problem because I really do think this is far superior to even The Crow. I think this is one of the great sci-fi movies of the 90s, the late 90s. I mean, I put this right up there with like The Matrix and everything else, where this is one that's really, really well done. It's got a little bit of a Blade Runner aesthetic to certain parts. It has a lot of film noir, which is one of my favorite genres. And it's just a really, really smart, well done, and impeccably acted film. And I love creepy shit in this movie. Yeah, I love the blending of the sci-fi and the film noir, which is a combination we don't see very often. No, and and that's why I uh, I pegged Blade Runner. I'd argue Blade Runner is one of the only other mainstream ones that have done that. You could also say Escape from New York has some noirish elements, not so much in the story, but in the cinematography. Yeah, in the cinematography, yes, because uh, I would definitely put Escape from New York with more on the like um, almost exploitation side. Yeah, true. By exploitation, you know, it's real down and dirty and gritty and violent. But Snake Plissken is every bit of a noir hero. I yeah, mean, absolutely. He's the tough, the, a man's man, tough guy, you know, with the constantly smoking with the eye patch and everything. Absolutely. So when did you first see Dark City? When it came out, I actually went and saw it at the show. Oh, um, really? Mm-hmm. Because I was a huge, huge fan of The Crow growing up. Uh, I mean, I was, you know, definitely, that was like my era in late middle school, high school, like, I'm goth, The Crow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was pre-Nightmare Before Christmas. Um, <laughs> you know, I had graphic novel. I loved it. But I was also a Bruce Lee fan. So, you know, his son, Brandon Lee, and and then with the controversy around it and everything like that, it just gave it so much more of a mystique. Uh, So I had to see the next movie by the guy who did The Crow. And I saw this and I instantly like fell in love with it almost from the beginning. The music, the score, the acting. And uh, it it just blew my mind. This is one of the movies that I can honestly remember exactly how I felt seeing it as a, you know, early teen. Cool. I I missed it in theaters, and uh, I still distinctly, I don't remember when I saw it. It probably had been around for a decade by the time I finally got to see it. And what what was interesting to me, as far as my first experience seeing it, is I rented it at the same time as another movie that I had missed in theaters and was told that I needed to see. And so I, I think I had like a free weekend or something, and so I rented this and A Knight's Tale. Well, <laughs> a Knight's Tale has Rufus Sewell in it as yeah. the bad guy. It's really good. 
And he's he's fantastic as the bad guy in that. But to watch that, which I had never seen before and be like, wow, I enjoyed that. Now, let me put this in and have the same actor. It was really weird to, to suddenly have to shift from booing him to rooting for him. Yeah, I could definitely see that because they are completely on opposite ends of the spectrum, not only in character, but accent, uh, you know, t- point of time, everything. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I could see that in a jolt. Yeah, for sure. it, it was a very weird experience. And it, I, I don't know if you've seen any. Uh, I think it's on it, its fourth. I think it may be final season. But Rufus Sewell's performance in Man in the High Castle is absolutely fantastic. You know, you know, that's one of those things. It, it, it's totally like I'm a totally a cliche. Oh, no, I, I know. I got to watch it. I got to watch it. I haven't seen any of it. Same with like fucking Breaking Bad. I mean, we're even going back that far. I haven't seen a single episode. Oh, my God. I know. Uh, <laughs> and yet I will sit here and binge watch Friends or The Office for the ninth time. <laughs> you know what I mean? Instead of putting on something I should probably see. But no, The Man in the High Castle is definitely one I want to see because it's it's really right up my alley, too. Yeah. The sort of be an alternate reality. I, I That is like my bread and butter. I've only seen the first two seasons. For some reason, I, I just didn't pick it up for season three, and season four just came out, and uh, I, I'm ready to binge. Like, I, I watched the uh, recap that came out before season three, and like, oh, yeah, I really liked this show. I need to get back in it and, and finish it off now. Yeah, it's Prime, right? It's an Amazon original? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I got to get to that. I got to try it. Just try it. What the hell? <laughs> so you mentioned The Matrix. Why do you think this movie failed? where the matrix succeeded because this comes out a year before the matrix uh it actually ends up selling some of its sets from production to the matrix most notably the rooftop but this movie only makes five million dollars and the matrix ends up making 27 million dollars and, and spurring two sequels why, why do you think the matrix succeeded and this one didn't catch on uh well i mean mainly keanu reeves was known rufus sewell wasn't uh the matrix one of their biggest things is they invented all these new camera tricks and technology, and it was very CGI heavy and everything else. Because The Matrix really is just as heady of a movie as this is. I mean, Matrix is definitely another one where you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> but The Matrix also had the modern aesthetic, the cool music, the black leather, the guns, everything else. Where this one is really, at its core, a character study film noir piece. I just don't know that this one... I think it was... Definitely after its time, but also a little bit before the resurgence of film noir. I think if this movie came out right on the cusp of like a Sin City or something like that, I think it would have done a lot better. So ahead of its time? Ahead, but also after, because it would have came out around the time Blade Runner came out, I think it would have done better too. Mm. Even though Blade Runner is considered a flop when it came out, but Blade Runner also is one of the biggest uh, cult-celebrated movies of all time. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So... I just think it hit right at the wrong time. I, I think people heard, you know, from the guy who brought you the crow and expected another crow, not a think piece. That's a good point. Okay. Taking a look at how the critics responded to this, uh, it currently sits at 76% on Rotten Tomatoes with an 85% audience score. So people like this movie. A uh, lot. And yeah, 66% lot. at Metacritic. Uh, That's really good, especially for a movie of, of this type from its time. Oh, yeah. I mean, and I don't know anybody that I've introduced this movie to who didn't like it. Mm. So, I mean, it, and even my first episode of this podcast, it comes up. It was in the, the algorithm suggested it based on uh, Alien, which was the movie Margaret picked for our first episode. 
you know, and, and I've, I've shared it with her. I don't think she's got a chance to watch it yet, but I mean, even when it came up then people were like, Oh yeah, dark City's awesome. Roger Ebert praised it. He uh, said the movie teasingly explores the question that babies first ask in peekaboo. When I can't see you, are you there? It's through that game that we learn the difference between ourselves and others. But what if we're not there either? The movie is a glorious marriage of existential dread and slam bang action. Toward the end, there is a thrilling apocalyptic battle that nearly destroys the city, and I scribbled in my notes, quote, for once a sequence where the fire and explosions really work and don't just play as effects. That was very well put. I'm, I'm not usually so much of a critic darling, like I don't necessarily let critic uh, opinion influence uh, what I'll watch or how I feel about something. But as far as that, I, 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 I kind of have to agree with almost everything he said. I never heard it put that way. Yeah, uh, the peak of allegory is is pretty spot on, actually. Yeah. Oh well. On the flip side, we have Owen Gleiberman from Entertainment Weekly. I'll be curious to hear <laughs> your take rag. on this. <laughs> that rag. Who's heard of that? <laughs> Gleiberman writes: Dark City might best be described as techno goth music video noir, a tin pot amalgam of Blade Runner and Strange Days with an attention deficit style of editing. These aren't jump cuts; they're jitter cuts and sets that look like sets. The movie features some dazzling hallucinogenic nightmare visions and at least one reoccurring image that's memorable. Skyscrapers rise up out of the streets and this, as the city remakes itself in tandem with the humans shifting mental landscapes. At the same time, Proyas can't tell a straight story and even his most arresting images are derivative. That churning building stuff is cribbed from the pirate ship Fantasia Terry Gilliam designed for Monty Python's The Meaning of Life. Rufus Sewell, with his Romanesque handsomeness, has an alluringly tormented presence, but he's playing a cipher, a man robbed of memory and of dramatic dimensions, too. Dark City is so busy trying to blow your mind, it never reveals a mind of its own. C+. Hmm. Well, there are things with that statement I can't disagree with. I, I can't disagree that it is a film, techno-noir, goth sort of film. Absolutely it is. Okay. All the, all the movies at this time were. That, that was a huge, huge deal. I'd argue The Matrix is also that. I would, too. I mean, that's exactly what, the, but that's the point. And even Rufus Sewell's performance, uh, you know, but that's also the point of his character and his performance. He doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't emote. He does because how could you? It, it's, it's, it's a, you know, and I guess that's what I'm getting at. It, that's my issue with critics. It's, they're just another person watching a film. Well, Yeah. You know, and it's the problem is they because I mean, our your podcast, my podcast, it's just us talking about movies. It's our opinion on the movies. It's when the self-importance comes in or the well, no, you're not seeing it the way I'm not seeing it. I don't give a shit. If I like a movie, I like a movie. I I don't. Nobody's going to dissuade me. You might bring up points that I might be like, oh, I never thought of it like that. And if you know, but if I like it, I like it. And I'd argue this movie has many layers, many nuances. It is a really almost perfectly executed mashup of genre, which a lot of people cannot do. And like I said, I'd argue Alex Proyas handled it incredibly well. I, I, especially for him to write something like this and also execute it the way he did and direct it the way he did. And I love that the sets a lot of times look like sets because, Oh, I don't know. That's what's happening in the movie. 
Right. I mean, that's that's it's all created shit. It's the, none of it's real. They're in a simulation. It's not right. reality. And the the fact that they make some of the sets look like sets just enhances that adds an, that effect to the film as well for the audience. I agree. It gives it in a in like a eeriness and a sense of discomfort. Whereas the audience, you're like, this is all little odd looking, but the characters who live in it don't realize it because they live there. Right. So, but I mean, hey, C plus is still passing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I can't argue against that. <laughs> so, one of the things that stood out to me uh, on this rewatch for me is how often do you get a movie that essentially reveals its entire plot in one of the first shots? And that's for us, it's when Rufus Sewell's character, Murdoch, he wakes up in that bathtub. And he gets out, and as he goes out the door, he knocks over the fishbowl and shatters it. And then he picks up the fish and saves it. Mm-hmm. That's the story right there. 100%. But in the way it's expertly done is, you don't realize that until after the movie's over. Right. I mean, they totally give it to you on a platter. And it's done so well. And so there's, no, there's not really a lot of misguidance in this. I mean, the, even the mystery part of it, it it's... Once you see, you know, Richard O'Brien and the other characters, you know something is not right. Something's afoot. You see the cities change. You see all this. So the mystery isn't really here for the audience. The mystery is here for the character. Like, what the hell is going on? We get it. There's something otherworldly happening here. Before we proceed talking about the story, let me ask you, did you watch the original theatrical version of the film or did you watch the director's cut? I've seen both. I will, because I saw it in the theater. Okay. I've probably seen the director's version more, just from owning it. But you, yes, I've seen the versions. Do you, do you have a preference? Not not really, actually. I enjoy both. Because uh, Proyas, his argument against the theatrical cut was that speech that we played in lieu of the trailer, that that was, cre- they, they kind of took that out of the, that scene out of the film and put it in as an opening narration. And yes. Proyas felt like that revealed too much of the hand behind the film too early in the film. What, what do you think about that? I mean, he, he's probably right. I mean, that does lay it all out there a little too early, but at the same time, like I said, there, there's no question, you know, what's going on anyways, at least I would think so. Uh, so it doesn't really bother me. I kind of prefer it without that opening uh, Kiefer narration, but I, I honestly like both versions. I don't necessarily prefer one over the other in this case. Usually okay. a lot of times with the director's cuts, I do prefer one or the other, but I, I, Honestly, enjoy both versions. Fair enough. Well, I mean, just you were talking about the mystery, and I, I just was curious as to whether you thought that narration affected the mystery, because obviously Proyas did. I, I don't know that it does. Um, the first time we see the strangers, regardless of whether that opening narration is there or not, they're creepy. They're and, terrifying. Which they're almost is terrifying in this film. Yeah, and they're almost iconic in that appearance. In fact, it's reminiscent of... Uh, the gentleman from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, as well as as other kinds of underworld figures like this, but they're they're very iconic in their appearance, and it's and it's creepy. No, they, I mean they definitely are creepy. They're definitely iconic. I mean, with the hats, the coats, the gloves, everything, the way they float through the air, even to the point where there was a fucking wrestler who bit this gimmick. A professional wrestler tried to be one of these characters in the ring. It failed miserably because, of course, but still. Wait, 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 wait. What? I, I see. I didn't know about that. That's new to, new to me. What, what wrestler? Gold Dust. When he went to WCW, Dustin Rhodes, 
bit his gimmick that he was going to premiere with. He was called Seven. Bit this whole gimmick. He used to like taunt children in their bedrooms with his video acts, and he would float down to the ring. They had him on wires, and he would come down the way they float in this. He had the hat, the coat, everything. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, yeah. Look it up. It's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> but still, it, it's like I said, Rich O'Brien's great. Uh, I, I don't, I can't, God bless, I can never, I don't remember his name, but from uh, Matt Max, from. Oh, you know, yeah. Um, and in the Matrix. I mean, the guy's been in Bruce everything. Spence. Yes, he's really good. The kid is terrifying. The kids are creepy as fuck. And especially when you find girl. out. When you find out later on, they say that they're wearing your dead. Yeah. Oh, God. That's a dead yep. little kid. It's a little girl. Too. Yeah, it's a little girl. Oh, my God. Yeah, terrifying. And they, they can bite the hand. Oh, Jesus. But I absolutely love the sort of world building behind these people. and, and Well, not people, but these alien creatures and what ultimately their goal may be. You know, just to sort of study us and shape the world around just to see how we react. Yeah, the first time we see them gather, it, it, to me, it reminded me a little bit of Brazil. Yeah, I could see that. Definitely, definitely. It's a very, there is a lot of Gilliam sort of set design, maybe even some camera tricks, things like that. that there is a lot of very uh, Gilliam-esque sort of design to the whole world, really. Yeah, and, and it's not listed as one of his uh, inspirations, but uh, yeah. I call bullshit on that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the, the, the kid continues to creep me out. That, that, that's all I can say. It's in scary old women are the fucking the worst. They're, <laughs> they're, they're absolutely terrifying. So, you know, we meet Murdoch and I think it's interesting what Proyas does because he's not a murderer. He's not a killer. And yet he's been put in this position where he is. The the imprint on him didn't take, but if it had taken, then he'd be playing the role of murderer. And yet, as an audience member, especially after he saves the goldfish, I didn't buy that he was a killer. And he could have been, but I just didn't accept that. No, I, I absolutely agree, and I'm glad that they didn't sort of <laughs> make it that he actually did. But no, I absolutely agree. There, there's not one second of this that you think, oh no, he is a killer. Yeah, and I mean, there's even a line in there about that when when William Hurt's detective gets involved that that he says, you know, how many killers do you know that would stop to save a goldfish? Right. So I I don't know if that right there is what Proyas did that makes me side with Murdoch, but it worked. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And to jump on, you know, a point you just made, how fucking good is William Hurt in this movie? I was going to go there really quickly. Yeah, he's he's amazing. And especially... I haven't seen great William Hurt in a while. I think the last couple of William Hurt movies I've I, I've seen, you know, I mean, his cameos in the Avengers because he was in The Incredible yeah. Hulk. Uh-huh. And then, of course, The Village, which I absolutely hate. Oh, um, yeah. So it was refreshing to revisit this and be like, oh, yeah, William Hurt can be a good actor. Oh, I, I argue his probably history of violence, which I haven't seen. Oh, come on, man. What the hell? <laughs> Have not seen that. Uh, no, it's uh, I'm, I'm a big William Hurt fan. I, you know, listeners to my show might even have gleaned that because I mentioned him quite a bit. He's one of my favorites. I really like his dry, understated acting, but there's a lot behind his eyes constantly. Yeah. And I think he's absolutely the perfect choice for this type of character. 
this sort of hard-nosed detective, but he is not above questioning everything around him. Yeah, I mean, I, I love that hard-boiled detective persona that he puts on, but he has that one scene where he's reminiscing about the accordion. Uh-huh. And he's talking about playing it and practicing it. And then he gets to the epiphany of, I can't remember when she gave it to me. Yeah, all the cracks are starting to form. Yeah, and it's like, that's that's the moment you realize that he's in this 100% as well. That as much as he wants to get his man, he wants to get to the truth. Yeah, and, he can't ignore what you know is unfolding in front of him personally either. And that's a huge trait for that Boyle detective. You know, you look at... Yeah, it's a silly reference, but, you know, Eddie Valiant in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, he wanted to get to the truth. Jake Gitz in Chinatown, you know, they're they're more about getting to the truth than getting to the end of the case that just happens to be their paycheck at the moment. Right. Yeah. Uh, You know, even uh, Edmund Oxley in uh, L.A. Confidential. Yeah. Which, by the way, Jesus Christ, what a great movie. But um, (laughs) No, you're absolutely right. It's when does... Catching the bad guy outweigh maybe everything is not what it seems. Like, do you just catch the bad guy so you can close the case? Or do you pay attention to all the, if you want to call them coincidences or whatever you want to call them, things that are happening in front of you? And uh, I think this movie really, really does a good job with that, especially with his character. To where he is all about catching the bad guy, don't get me wrong, but he can't ignore the little idiosyncrasies that are happening right in front of his eyes. And I love that we see his character change through that, that it's not just, you know, that speech about the accordion, but like Walensky, he's very dismissive of Walensky at the very beginning of the picture, you know, that this detective's gone crazy and that he needs to be committed. But then as he's starting to uncover the truth and realize there are weird forces at play here and things are kind of going around in a circle, he makes that connection with what Walensky was trying to say. And suddenly he becomes a little more empathetic to Walensky's plight. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, to the fact where you could tell Proyas loved the character so much because he gets the hero's death. Yes. I mean, he, he's the one who ultimately pays the ultimate sacrifice to expose and stop what's happening. I mean, effective or not, he, he makes that sacrifice and that choice. So no, he, he really loved the character. And I I think it's a wonderfully fleshed out character. There's not many characters in this film that I'm like, eh, they're kind of just one note. I mean, if there is, it, I mean, I, unfortunately, I'd have to maybe pick Jennifer Connelly. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> but, but, but this is also a time where there weren't many strong female written characters. Because I'd even argue Trinity in The Matrix is nothing really more than the love interest for Keanu in the first one. I mean, yes, she's a badass and everything, but she, she doesn't really do much except kick ass. That's about it. There's not many layers to her character. Don't about Jennifer Connelly, I, I also really enjoy her as an actress, and I think this is probably, she's really good in it. It's a very understated performance, very muted performance, and, I mean, she she's beautiful in it. I mean, the eyebrows, I don't know, but she's gorgeous. <laughs> but I guess they compliment Rufus Sewell's cute little eye. But she, she doesn't have a lot to do in this role. For uh, me, this is almost a turning point for her because a, as much as I love the movie Labyrinth, mm-hmm. uh, she's awful in it. And Terrible. Yeah. Terrible. I, and I love that movie, but she's awful in it. And yes. 
this to me was almost I think part of it is exactly what you said about it being kind of a subdued performance. And, and maybe that's because she doesn't have a lot to do at the same time. She's also kind of part of the salvation of this universe because she's the love interest. She's what Rufus Sewell's character ends up kind of fighting for. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think this is the film. If you went back, when did Jennifer Connelly really start showing that she can really kind of act and and not well, act my well no act because she was terrible in the fucking labyrinth um when she, <laughs> show she has chops and i i think this might be one of the the first examples where you're like oh no she's really kind of got something here you know and it only got better and better from here like you watch this and you know fuck what two years later wrecking for a dream absolutely you know I, and i mean her growth it was amazing and she is quite like, there's a lot here to her. There is a lot of meat and a lot of emotion, a lot of sort of pain and confusion behind her character and her acting and even behind her eyes. They just don't really expand upon it enough. Well, and I think part of her purpose is to not to not to sound shallow, I guess, but as an audience, you know, if you want she's there to look good, she's if you there. want an audience to yeah. fall in love with a character they kind of have to look good from the beginning. They have to look appealing in order to catch our eye. Um, yeah, I agree. No, I agree with you hundred percent. And I don't think that's shallow. And I don't see, uh, I, I don't think you're out of turn saying that. I think that is absolutely the case. And I think that is a tried and true trick that has been used forever. It's still being used. Oh yeah. There's no question that Scarlett Johansson was cast for black widow because of how she looks. <laughs> I just rewatched iron man two like two nights ago. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. That's why she was cast. Because I'd argue she was terrible for her first couple rounds as Black Widow. She's gotten fucking really good. But she was terrible the first couple rounds. There's no question. uh, At least in my opinion. Well, and it goes to just our base human nature. I mean, when you're dating, when you go out to a bar or a restaurant or wherever to meet someone, what draws you to a person first and foremost is going to be their looks. Yeah, it's not their fucking IQ level. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it's not. Let's be honest. Men and women. You don't see someone and be like, I wonder if they've ever read fucking Sun Tzu, The Art of War. You, you, know, you don't give a shit. It, it, it's pure animal and sexual instinct. You know, and, and for the t- and another thing, too, I could say about Jennifer Connelly, she looks like she is dead set, should have been in this era. Oh, yeah. Whatever this 1950s, era. 50s, 19, whatever they're trying to do, the 40s or 50s or 20s. Or whatever the hell it is. She looks dead on. She belongs. Well, for that I, matter, uh, what, do, what do you think about Melissa George? She plays the, the prostitute. You know, I like Melissa George as an actress, too. And this was her debut. Was this her debut? Yep. Wow. Well, that's saying something. Because I'm not. I, I kind of like her. You know, I like. Um, I think she's really good in 30 Days a Night. I liked her in Amityville. You know, I think she's very attractive. I think she's got a lot of talent. I'd argue, like, there's the movie, I don't know if you ever saw it, A Lonely Place to Die. I have not seen that one either. Come on, Rafe. What the fuck? Anyway, (laughs) she's really good in that. Nobody's seen that. Don't worry about it. She's really good in that. I, I like her. I like her a lot. And I also think she looks dead on for this era. Yeah. So, but again, I mean, it's not that the female actresses in this movie are bad. They don't turn to bad performances. They have nothing to do. Like, they're almost placeholders. Jennifer Connelly, there's no question. She's in this to push the story. Right. But that doesn't, again, that doesn't make it a bad performance, but that just makes it, she's there. She's not terrible. I don't hate her in it, but it's just, 
there's nothing there. So what do you think about Kiefer Sutherland's performance in this? I think this is my all-time favorite Kiefer Sutherland performance. Really? Really do. Uh, I mean, maybe David and Lost Boys, because I love Lost Boys. Yeah. Uh, See, I was going to go with that or Ace in uh, Stand By Me. That's a really good one, too. What a piece of shit. Uh, No, (laughs) (laughs) he's really good in it, though his cadence, the way he talks... That, I mean, it sounds like he's in pain when he's stalking them. It's a weird choice. It's a very odd choice, and that's kind of why I love it. Because who the hell, well, Alex Poyas, obviously, he's the director, but for him to do that and talk like this all the time. Yeah. Like, what the fuck? It's really weird, but I really, really like it. And, but the reason it's my favorite performance is when he gives Murdoch the drug, and he's in his memories as the mailman and the milkman and everything sort of guiding him. Yeah. He's fucking awesome. I love him in that, especially because compared to the Kiefer you're used to for the for most of the movie, it is such a, like, you know, a 180. It's completely different. Yeah. Well, and one of the things I like about his character is he's, he's such an enigma because he seems to genuinely want to help Murdoch on this journey, but he's working for the strangers. Oh, it's selfish reasons. And so when he grabs, when he puts that syringe, when he, when he finally has to implant Murdoch there at the end, uh-huh. you legitimately don't know until it's revealed which syringe he used. Is yeah. he there? Is he going to kill Murdoch or is he going to help him rise up? And, and, and you don't know because his, Alliances are questionable. Absolutely. And I think that's what makes him a great character. You you have no idea the entire movie where this guy's coming from. Like you said earlier, you could pin down Murdoch right off the bat. There's no way this guy's the killer. You get William Hurt's character. He's a hard-nosed detective who questions everything. Kiefer Sutherland's character, you have no idea. You have yeah. no idea. Is he scheming? Is this all ego? Is this all self-serving is it for the greater good is it for the better of everybody you have no idea until the moment those flashbacks happen and you're like oh shit no he's really trying to put an end to this but that's why i really really enjoyed and i think it's a great performance i love the subtle makeup i think it adds so much more to the character giving him the kind of lazy eye and you know the scar and everything else and like i said the cadence of the voice alone when whoever decision that was good job <laughs> well, you know, we- his character is named after uh an author who wrote about schizophrenia uh it was a book called memoirs of my nervous illness uh which inspired philosophers such as freud and jung with their own theories that sounds like a good sunday read <laughs> <laughs> well i mean it's part of the complexity of what dark city builds upon and what the Matrix builds upon. I mean, it's they're both very postmodern movies. This idea that that meaning has been lost, the world has been lost along the way, and whatever meaning it still has is because we attribute it to it. Sure, and 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 both are also telling you to question everything. Right, because by getting too caught up in what you believe or what you think to be right, you're essentially become a slave to the system. Hmm. Absolutely. They're both very anarchistic sort of points of view. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, they're down with the man, question everything, everybody's lying to you. So we, we get to the point where 
Murdoch does free the city. And as I said, you know, it's that fishbowl from the very beginning. You know, he, he frees the city. He frees the people. We discover that they're on this spacecraft, I guess, for lack of a better word. Like um, an or whatever. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There are several different theories out there about where these people originally came from that are being used in this experiment. Where do you think they came from? Earth. I think they're just abducted people. Abducted people from Earth. Okay. Yeah, I think that's kind of the shtick. Therefore, I mean, I don't think these people grew them in a fucking lab or something like that. I think they were born someone else and then taken in and planted here. Uh, well, not here, but on the setting of the film. Uh, and that's, a, you know, the other thing, too. Who knows when the hell this actually takes place? Well, yeah, and they, they specifically put anachronisms in to keep the time period uh, confusing. Mm-hmm. Now, where do you think they come from? Uh, where do I think they come from? Well, David Goyer, who helped write it, said that there were two explanations that he he gave. And one is that there are passengers on a on a spaceship that have been abducted, which kind of goes with your theory. Uh, I like Goyer's other theory, which is that they're they're dead. And this is kind of purgatory. Now, I like that. Don't me wrong. I do like that. But then that also raises a whole other set of questions. And you can also pick a lot of things apart. True. Now they're dead in purgatory. So what is Murdoch then? Because then Murdoch is an anomaly. Right. How can Murdoch in purgatory create things and make things the way in his the way he wants them to be? How can Murdoch create Pebble Beach at the end? You know what I it, it that to me I like the idea, but I don't know that it holds a lot of water. Oh yeah. No, I mean it's it's definitely one of those theories that if you apply it, the film starts to fall apart. It's yeah. just a cool it's a cool concept. I don't like that they were on a spaceship either. I don't like the idea that, well, I mean, I guess it could because in the parameters of the movie, could this take place in the future? Sure. Well, here's my, here's my question. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Murdoch frees the world. He gets rid of the strangers. He's, he's now freed us all. What happens to Adam Thomas? Adam Thomas, who was implanted with the memories of being married, of being a father, of being a podcaster. Mm-hmm. How does how does what Murdoch did or does, how does that impact you in the slightest? I drink myself, silly. <laughs> no, I, I don't know. No, I, I I guess I never thought I don't think of it in those terms. Okay. Uh, not necessarily from that viewpoint, but I, I guess I don't know. You because you got to figure you would question everything that's come before you. Uh, at least I think any sane person would. You know, what does food actually taste like? What does oh, you God. Know, <laughs> sex actually feel like? What does, because then you wake up like, none of my memories are real. I've never experienced any of these things. But see, I think it's almost on the flip side of that is that they're now stuck in whatever the last imprint was for them. But now they have, well, they are, but then. But at the same time, they're not, because now you have this Christ allegory, who is Murdoch, and this God now True. who can recreate everything in his, however he wants. He could give you new memories or have you do whatever he wants you to do. So, I mean, really, when you when you open it up that way, the possibilities are limitless. Yeah. Oh, God. I love this movie so much. <laughs> I know, it's so fucking good, man. I'm telling you. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> I absolutely love it. Uh, you know, and it's. Like I said, Richard O'Brien, because I, I do want to talk about him a little bit. Okay. I know Richard O'Brien, obviously, as most riffraff. Right. Which I think is where most people know him from, from Rocky Horror I, Picture I, Show. I would be 
and so, right? I, I know he's a playwright. He does acting here and there. He was actually in a movie we just covered on our podcast, uh, which was a terrible film. What movie? Oh God, it's a Revolution with Al Pacino. It's a like a it's a war movie, the British American War. It, it's really I, fucking. I heard that episode, and I don't think I remember you guys mentioning Richard O'Brien. That's interesting. You mentioned him for one second because he's the only good part about that movie. Because we wanted to stop talking about the movie. Um, he's, <laughs> but in this, he's absolutely perfect as this sort of. I don't want to call him Weasley because he's not. He's very scary, very intimidating. But his voice, he's real kind of like almost snake-like. Mm-hmm. The way he talks and the way he moves and the way he acts and everything. To me, it's not... It, it goes down in the pantheon for me. Uh, one of the better villain performances of the 90s. Because uh, I'm a huge, huge proponent. You have to have a good villain in these well, type and, of films. And he has to differentiate himself from the other performances by like Ian Richardson or Bruce Spence, because he's the stranger who gets injected with Murdoch's memories. Absolutely. So as they put it, if he's going to become one of us, then one of us needs to become him. So he has to differentiate his performance because suddenly he's part Murdoch. Yeah. He's, he's both now and it makes him almost even more perverse in a way, because not, not, he's not only Murdoch, but he's the murderer Murdoch. Right. So he's a sociopathic alien. How the fuck do you play that? And and not to mention, yeah, that they even said that doing this injection on the them w- potentially could make them psychotic or, or destroy their mind. So what, it's like, not only has he injected with being a psychotic, but now he's also going through it because, you know, he's screwed up his head. Where does your character work on something like that? What 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 study on what do you glean to make to better your performance on something like that? This is completely his doing off the top of his head. Well, I was going to say I, I would binge watch Hannibal a couple of times, but that didn't exist in nineteen ninety eight. And he's really fucking good. Oh yeah, he's really good. I I I I'm guessing. I, from what I understand about him, he probably, he's not a big fan of doing a lot of work as far as acting. He's more of a writer, more of a, you know, producer, things like that. I'm just really surprised that this guy didn't get more villain work because of this. Even at his age, he was during this. Well, but, but again, no this movie, to me. I could see Richard O'Brien as a Bond villain even. But again, this movie wasn't successful. So, you know, if we lived in a world where this movie had been a hit at the box office, then it probably would have made a bigger difference in in some of these, you know, careers. That's true. I mean, you're probably right. Uh, but I'd argue, too, that other than Jennifer Connelly, A, William Hurt has already been established. Oh, yeah. None of the other main actors are really mainstream-looking actors. You know, Rufus Sewell is a very character-looking actor. He's a character actor, there's no question. He's not a leading man. Much as I like him in this, he's not a leading man actor. Uh, Kiefer, well, Kiefer is sort of. He he got that, especially with like 24. But that guy's got such a fucking endless amount of problems. Right. So, I mean... I don't, think, be, I don't think it would have mattered how successful this movie had been as I far don't. as Kiefer went. Because, I mean, he had how many hits as a younger actor that he kind of had to go through his dark period and rebirth himself in order to have the successful career he has now. 
Yeah, I, I think that I think that's absolutely 100% correct. But like I said, I, I just why to go back to your question you asked me earlier, why do you think this movie wasn't successful? Um that's I Exactly. You put me on the fucking spot. <laughs> Wait, who's the host here? Oh, wait. No, you're doing a fantastic job, by the way. I I, well, thank you. I I think I think the Matrix wore its philosophy a little more on its sleeve. You know, it it builds itself on stuff like Baudrillard's uh, simulation and simulacra, and it has a freaking copy of the book appear in the movie. Yeah, I I think you're right. I think this movie's built based on that same foundation. Yeah, but it's only going to appeal like the Matrix gave people a rabbit hole to go down. I think with its references to philosophy, it also put it in front of them so they could go down that rabbit hole. And Dark City was like cool ideas, but now what? Uh, you know, I, I think you might actually be on something there. And also the Matrix, and to get shallow or whatever, when it called again, Matrix is populated with sexy people. Uh, in tight clothing, gunfights, action, explosions, very attention-grabbing things. True. Uh, yeah, but this it is, is a much more cerebral film than The exactly. Matrix. But The Matrix also is very cerebral at its core. But oh, yeah. I think, you know, the switch was flipped a little bit, where The Matrix gave you all the action and stuff, and the underlying thing was the cerebral, where this is the opposite. Yeah, I mean, I wrote my... Uh college thesis on the matrix movies so and i was an english major so i mean that's it tells you (laughs) how far you could go with with the matrix but part of that's also i didn't know about this movie at the time so i wish i had which i don't mean to keep drawing comparisons to the two but they did only come out a year later and they did share sets and they do definitely have similar ideas well yeah i think drawing a connection between the two is it, it would be more challenging not to but I, I also think I if you like the Matrix and, you know, again, $27 million as opposed to $5 million, if you like the Matrix, then this movie is definitely worth your time. Isn't it insane that the Matrix made $27 million nowadays that'd be considered a huge bomb? Well, yeah, that's that's true. And, my, and that may just be opening weekend. I think that still may, I think my numbers. Yeah, well, that's true. That still would be considered a failure. Mm-hmm. I mean, now you're talking. If you don't make five hundred million your opening weekend, you're considered a bomb. With the Marvel, you know, yeah, of the Marvel effects like that. Right. <laughs> the other, the other reference I wanted to throw out there, and you may be too young to remember this because you're you're in your thirties, right? Late thirties, yeah. Oh, late thirties. Okay, maybe you're old enough to remember this. The, the, the Twilight Zone had a rebirth in the eighties. I remember. And there was an episode, uh, and I had I had to track it down. Unfortunately, the '80s Twilight Zone isn't on any streaming service, but it, a lot of their episodes are on YouTube. But there was an episode called "A Matter of Minutes," and it was where a couple woke up and they were stuck in between time, and the time was being constructed around them by these people in blue. Totally worth a check out if you haven't seen it. It's on YouTube, so you don't have to pay any money or anything. But it, the the idea of them stopping the city at night and reconstructing it reminded me of that Twilight Zone episode. See, I don't know that I'm familiar with that particular episode. I, I, I probably... I've probably seen it because I'm a huge Twilight Zone fan, and I've gone back and watched pretty much all Twilight Zones I get my hands on. 
<laughs> but I don't, you know, it's one of those where if I saw it again, I'd be like, oh, yeah. But I, I don't remember that one. I Maybe that's something I, I actually got to look up. Yeah, I'll I'll post a link for it so that you can see it. But you, you I, I think if you see it, you'll quickly see where my connection between Dark City and that came from. Because it's I don't I don't even remember who hosted it. Who hosted the eighties? It, it still used sound bites from Rod Serling. Serling, that's yeah. what I thought. Okay, that's what I thought. Because then was Forrest Whitaker also, or was that uh, Outer Limits? No, Forrest Whitaker was the uh, early. That was the two thousands. 2000s right yeah and I he got, was the uh, one in the 2000s which i specifically love because they did a um a sequel to the original episode a good place which had bill Mooney mm-hmm. as the kid who wished people away to the cornfield yep, and they did yep. a sequel in the 2000s with him as a grown-up and his real life daughter playing his daughter in the episode oh, that's cool so, and i guess we're kind of onto a little theme here with guys with little eyes Force Whitaker, Roof Soul, and Kiefer Sutherland in this movie. There you go. Uh, <laughs> no, so I, I definitely, yeah, I will definitely check out that link. Um, and you know what? That's a very good uh, call, too. I could see something like this being a Twilight Zone sort of uh, story or idea, like a, a Matheson sort of deal. I could definitely see that the, with the underlying evil, the behind the scenes sort of puppeteers, where nothing is as it seems. So the other philosophy that it kind of builds on, uh, we already talked about the schizophrenia. Uh, there, there's definitely touches of Plato's allegory in the cave here where Murdoch is the man who has gone out and seen reality and now has to explain that to the people still trapped in the cave. And I think that's that's kind of what we were talking about, about what happens next. You know, right. he, he, do, he does become a Christ figure, as you said. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, obviously, I think... Murdoch would handle it, handles it better than, you know, you or I ever could. Uh, It's just, it's, but it also makes him an ultimate tragic figure because if you follow that thorough line, you follow that sort of subcontext or that pre-established sort of timeline or however you want to phrase it. uh, Ultimately he's what he's going to become a martyr as well. There's no Uh question. I, I mean, he's not going to be omnipotent. And well, that's true. He, he has this whole world basically full of people who are asking questions or going to ask questions. So, you know, I, I'd like to see maybe this movie 20 years down the line. See what happened with Murdoch. You so don't you know. would like a sequel? I would like a sequel five years after this movie came out. I would not like a sequel now. Gotcha. Because I think this movie would only work if you had all of the original people back together and i don't see that happening yeah you're you're probably right i I, this is i don't know i'm on the other side this is one of those that i'm i'm happy that there isn't a sequel to i like the i i I do like stories that leave you wondering Mm -hmm. um you know what happens next or or don't fill in all of the holes for the audience that leaves some room for the audience to think and uh i i kind of like that this this one's open-ended well yeah, let me let me put it like this. I I'm very completely 100% satisfied with this movie as a one-off. I I honestly don't want a sequel. I mean, if it one happened, they'd have to be incredibly faithful and like I said, have all the original people back. And even then, the chance of it working is slim to none. I guess what I was trying to say is, yeah, this is not something I'd like to be see expanded upon now. I do not think it would work now. 
but there there are certain films to where after I watch them, I always like kind of think to myself like, God, what would happen like with this character five ten years down the road? Like, you know, I'm very curious. It doesn't mean I want a sequel. I just I would I'd be very curious as to even like in book form, right. sort of follow the character. Right. No, uh, I got you. Because I think a sequel to this would just totally negate the specialness of this film as itself. Oh, I agree. Yeah, I mean, I uh, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, I, I don't want to see a fucking sequel. Like, 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 you know, some of the sequels that are being talked about and planned now, you're like, oh, fucking why? <laughs> I, I, I definitely think this would fit right in there. Like, Gladiator? Gladiator. You want to make a sequel to Gladiator? No. Yeah, they are, though. Ridley Scott is, as far as I know, doing it. And it follows the little boy. Like, why I, are you doing this? I, I, uh, so the first episode of this podcast was Alien. And yes. the, from the first group of people that I pulled to use as guests, Blade Runner was also thrown out as a movie. And I almost had Legend as well. So uh, out of the first five okay. movies that we did, I almost had three Ridley Scott movies. Uh, at, at least it was from the era when Ridley Scott was good, because the man hasn't really made a great movie in over a decade. I think he's made competent movies. I don't think he's made good movies. They always look good. They're always well shot. They're always everything else. But the, the story of themselves has usually been very lacking. That was the way I described Gladiator. Is It was a good movie. It wasn't a great yes. movie. It didn't deserve an Oscar. It was a good movie. I enjoyed watching it. I love the score to it. But it's not a great it's, movie. It's one of the best modern scores of all time. I agree with you. Uh, I, I thought it was great when I first saw it. But it does not hold up. Yeah. And I don't want to go off on a really Scott tangent here. But exactly what we are talking about was sequels to older material uh i mean blade runner 2049 came out and i think that's damn near a perfect sequel yes to an older source material but, but the world was also yeah. fleshed out enough that there the was room for it fleshed out yes i don't think dark city i don't think you could do it like no. honestly i don't think you could i would i be curious what some of these characters are up to absolutely but full film form no i i don't want to see it yeah i agree with you all right, well, let's uh, kind of move into our closing thing here. So uh, the algorithm says these are movies that uh, algorithms have said you might like if you like this movie. This is kind of a lightning round, uh, sure. kind of your quick response. Are you asking to if movie? I like these or no? Okay. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Do you do you like them? Do you not like them? Do you uh, not understand why the hell they would be connected to Dark City? You know, that kind of thing. Okay. All right. Uh, so the algorithm says the 13th floor. I like it. I, I, I think it's underseen, but I also think it's a little bit overrated, too. There are people who really champion that movie, and I, I think it's okay. I think it's flawed. Cool. The Crow. Loved it. Like it now. Oh, really? You've cooled yeah. on it? Uh, a little bit. It's a little, you know, goth angsty for me. <laughs> okay. Gattaca. Love Gattaca. Okay. Equilibrium. Loved it. Like it now. <laughs> another one you've cooled yeah, uh, I off on it. I still like it but a little yeah you know take brazil uh, like with a question mark oh yeah yeah i don't know how i feel about it it's one of those uh, it's i think it's going to take me several viewings i've okay. only seen it once so all right now we start getting into some weirder selections um the uh, dunwich horror like like, I, I'm a, you know, big Lovecraftian sort of guy. So that's right up there. I'm a little curious as to how 
Lovecraftian connects to this one, but that's ah, just it's other otherworldly. So oh, okay, puppet masters. Um, altered states. Love because of William Hurt. And, William uh, Hurt. You know, yeah. yeah, love that movie. Johnny Mnemonic. Like it's cheesy, it's goofy. Dolph Lundgren plays a street preacher with a a metal exoskeleton. So how can you hate it? You know, what I mean? <laughs> it's fucking. It, it's silly. I like it though. In the mouth of madness. Love. Absolutely okay. love. Yeah, that's one of my favorite uh, Carpenter flicks. Uh, and the city of lost children. <sighs> pretentious, like, but pretentious. Uh, I think that's one of those where you know people are like, "Have you seen this? Have you fucking seen it?" <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I rented I it once. I don't think yeah, I actually watched it, that's but I that's rented it. That's exactly, it's one of those. You know, I, I, yeah, I rented it, or yeah, I saw it when thirteen years, fourteen years ago. You still like it? Like, have you revisited it? It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> Visually, well, otherwise, it kind of falls apart. Gotcha. All right, and we always close with the pop quiz. Got four questions somewhat related to our uh, source material here. All right. You ready? Uh, Fire away. All right, number one. Alex Proyas has given credit to several sources as inspiration for the story and feel of Dark City, which was not an influence for Proyas. A, Brazil, B, the Maltese Falcon, C, the Twilight Zone, or D, Akira? (sighs) Maltese Falcon? No, that's where he got his film noir idea from. I actually spoiled this one earlier in the episode. Brazil was not an influence, according to Proyas. Fuck, but Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Number two, the initial concept of Dark City did not follow Murdoch through the narrative. Instead, which character was originally the primary protagonist of the story? A, Schreiber, B, Bumstead, C, Emma, or D, Walensky? Uh, William Hurt. Bumstead, correct. Yep. He originally conceived the story about a 1940s detective obsessed with facts who cannot solve a case where the facts do not make sense. Mm -hmm. Three, uh, several alternate titles were used over the course of production, with the studio urging Proyas to deviate from Dark City due to its similarity to Mad City, released around the same time, which was not one of the possible titles for the film. A, Dark Empire... B, Dark World, or C, Shell Beach? Oh, man, I want to say it's C, but that seems like the obvious one, so I'm going to go Dark Empire. You should have gone with your gut. Shell Beach was not one of the possible titles. Fucking course. Which is odd, because I would have thought that would be a better title than Dark Empire. Yeah, Dark Empire, I instantly thought of Star Wars. Yep. And finally, one role was written with a specific actor in mind who did wind up playing the part. What role was it? Richard O'Brien. Yeah. (laughs) You can let me finish the question. (laughs) I already knew it, though. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Mr. Hand was specifically written with Richard O'Brien in mind. Uh, Although, Hurt was apparently originally considered for the role of Schreiber. And there is speculation that Murdoch may have been played by Brandon Lee if he had not passed away during the filming of The Crow. Wouldn't have liked either of those decisions. Don't be wrong. Brandon Lee, awesome. William Hurt, awesome. Wouldn't have worked. All right, Adam, where can people find you? What do you have to remote? At, uh, remote? <laughs> Promote. <laughs> you fuck. I, uh, Double Edge, Double Bill, which you've been a guest on. Yes. Uh, which we want to have you back as well. Oh, fantastic. Um, 
Double Edge Double Bill. You can find us on most, if not all, podcast streaming services at this time. Uh, we're also part of the ESO network, things like that. Uh, as far as social media presence, I don't really have one. I have my own personal Facebook, and then I have a Facebook business page, which is uh, facebook.com slash ghoulishgourds. I do custom artwork. It started with me doing you know, foam and plastic pumpkins that last forever, but I also do Christmas ornaments, things like that. I specialize in horror art, but I also do any kind of pop culture you can think of. They really are uh, quite fantastic. I, I I had an idea to to ask you to to do a commission on, and then I lost the idea over the course of a day. So I've got to look back to your gallery and see what inspired the idea in the first place. Uh, anything you want, I will cut you an insane deal. Uh, <laughs> and also for any of your listeners, if they mention they heard me talk about this on this show, I will cut them a deal. It's nothing crazy expensive. It's all full commissions, all one of a kind. It's just a pastime, part-time thing that I like to do. Keeps me entertained, keeps my brain focused. And uh, I figure why not make a little scratch and maybe make people happy while doing it. Well, they're really impressive, I can tell you, from the from the gallery pictures I've seen. Well, I appreciate that, man. I really do. All right. Anything else you want to promote? Uh, double Edge, Double Bill. I already said it. Uh, so, uh, no, I got nothing. I All got right. Adam, I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to revisit this movie. Uh, it is it is a great film. It really is. And uh, underlooked by far too many people. Thanks, Rafe. I really appreciate it. Honestly, if you like The Matrix and have not seen Dark City, put it on your proverbial list of movies to see right now. I wouldn't say either one is better than the other, but they are distinctly different enough that there is definitely room for both films and not enough people have seen Dark City yet. That does it for this week, but you can always keep the conversation going throughout the week through social media. You can find me at Talon Hess on Twitter or the show at Have Not Seen This on Twitter. On Facebook, we're at Have Not Seen This Podcast or email me at Have Not Seen This at gmail.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. This podcast is available on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify, where you can use the RSS feed to subscribe through whatever podcatcher you prefer. Positive ratings and reviews are always welcome. Although, hey, do me a favor. Go tell a friend about this podcast. We've had 11 episodes so far. There's got to be something in there that's going to appeal to someone you know. So help spread the word. Help me build up some listeners. And if you like World of Warcraft or other Blizzard games, be sure to check out my other podcast, Citizens of Azeroth, a World of Warcraft podcast, also available through all major podcast sources. Special thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song, and thanks to Adam Thomas for providing this week's conversation. Hey, maybe you have a movie you'd like to talk about, one that means something to you or you're particularly astonished when you discover that people have not seen. Come be a guest on the show. Head over to havenotseenthis.podbean.com, click the Be a Future Guest button, submit the form there, and we'll get you set up for a future episode. Until next week, I'm Rafe Telsch, and this has been Have Not Seen This.